I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Way back in 1993, the state of Texas put into place a test-based accountability system for its public schools that was unprecedented in its scope. It required that all students be tested annually in reading and math in grades 3 through 8 and again in grade 10. It required that the share of students passing those tests be reported for all students and for key demographic subgroups of students in each school. It called for sanctions on schools in which any subgroup of students failed to meet statewide passing rate targets and it required that those passing rate targets increase steadily over time. Sound familiar? If so, perhaps it's because the Texas system became the model for the Federal No Child Left Behind Act, which in 2002 required all states accepting federal education funds to do basically the same thing. So with Congress yet again wrestling with how to revise No Child Left Behind, it's a perfect time to look back at Texas's experience to see what we can learn about whether test-based accountability works and why. So that's what we'll do this week on uh, the EdNext podcast. I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and I'm joined with my colleague Dave Deming, an Associate Professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for being here, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here, Marty. Thank you for having me. So Dave, you're the author of uh, a uh, new article in Education Next, When Does Accountability Work?, which looks back at this Texas accountability system. And you know, as I look at your article, probably the most distinctive feature of it uh, is that it looks at the effects of accountability not just on test scores, but on attainment, how much schooling students complete, and also their earnings. You know, why is that so important? Uh, it's a great question. So um, in, the, in the paper, which is co-authored with um, Sandy Jenks, Jennifer Jennings, and Sarah Cahotis, um, we look particularly at, so we don't, we don't just look at long-run outcomes, we look at test scores too, and it's important to look at both. Always important to know what happens for kids in the long run when you're, if you can, when you're trying to do something in education. But it's particularly important in the case of school accountability because the, the premise of the policy is to place high stakes on test scores. High stakes meaning, um, you know, to, to essentially reward schools or students who do well on tests and to sanction students or schools who don't do well on tests. And when you, when you go from using tests as a diagnostic tool to assess which students are doing well and which aren't, to actually attaching high-powered incentives to it and basing people's jobs and lives on it, you get uh, this property where people basically decide sometimes that they, they, they can find a way to respond strategically, to find a way essentially to get around the system. So there are many, many examples of um, you know, schools um, allocating their best teachers to tested subjects instead of non-tested subjects, or focusing on tested grades instead of non-tested grades. You know, strategically classifying students as eligible for special education. I think there's a study that say they you know make school lunches more uh, that's right caloric on days when that's tests right. are being administered. That. And, then, and, then, and the other extreme, you've got kind of outright cheating scandals in places like Atlanta and Chicago. And so all that is to say, once you start to stop, once you stop using tests as a purely diagnostic tool, and also start using them as incent, you know, as as incentives, you kind of lose. You, you don't always know when the test scores mean something. So maybe the reason the test scores in a school went up was because the school lunches were nutritious, not because kids were actually learning more. And so what you need, the way to test for whether that's true, is to look at something that can't be strategically responded to, which is whether you graduated from college and what your earnings were in your mid-20s. And so we kind of use that as the omnibus test of 
whether school accountability really worked in you know, net of all the other responses that were happening in school. Yeah, so we know that students' test scores are actually strongly predictive of these long-run outcomes, but we don't know whether that relationship would remain as robust as it is exactly. uh, when uh, stakes are attached to those test scores. Exactly. Exactly. And so the other thing that I think it's important for people to understand about your paper is that uh, it focuses on the sort of degree of accountability pressure uh, experienced by specific schools. Uh, you know, why do you see that? Uh, what's distinctive about that and, and, and why is it important? Yeah, so one of the things that's hard about studying the, um, the, the impacts of school, a policy like school accountability at scale is that it essentially happened all in Texas to all schools at the same time. And for NCLB, it happened across the whole country at the same time. So it's hard to have schools that weren't affected in some way by accountability to compare. And so what we do is we say, look, you know, we're not going to talk about the impact of the Texas system relative to no Texas system because we don't have that comparison. But what we can do is say the idiosyncrasies of the system were such that some schools were right on the threshold between getting one rating and another. And so they faced a very strong incentive to do a little bit more to try to get over that hump. Whereas some schools were in this vast middle of school. So there was a rating in Texas called acceptable that most schools got. And the pass rates for students, like the share of students passing the 10th grade test, that would give the school an acceptable rating would be like between 30 and 60 percent. So it's such a wide range that if you expected half of your students to pass the test, it's pretty hard to, to, to get a big increase to get up to the next level, and it's very unlikely that all of a sudden your students are going to do much worse in one year. And so you were kind of safe mm -hmm. in that sense. So that those are our comparison schools compared to schools that were right, you know, maybe at the 59th percent, if they just needed a few more kids to get over the hump, they would get that higher rating. So you're not going to be able to say, based on this research, what was the overall effect of the Texas accountability system on student yeah. outcomes? Really, you're saying, uh, how do schools respond when they experience a greater degree of pressure relative to others? So it could be that there are benefits for all schools uh, that are sort of missed by your research design or yeah. costs. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Marty. I mean, we try to do some stuff in, um, to look at, you know, what are the, so there's been a lot of studies of, you know, people sometimes call it the Texas miracle. So huge increases in math and, and reading pass rates. And so what we look at is just a very simple thing, which is the trend in, in college attainment and trends in earnings. And we find a very small, modest, positive trend across mm -hmm. grade cohorts. So which, which suggests, you know, and it doesn't look to be wildly off to the estimates we have. So you know, that's something. Um, so something good was happening. Uh, yeah. Uh, but well, I think what's most interesting is when you zero down in this research and say, so how did schools respond to the pressure uh, when they were really at risk or on the margin of receiving one rating versus another? So, uh, you know, unfortunately, the answer is not uh, a simple one. The right. sub uh, you know, headline of the article is mixed impacts, which, you know, uh, yeah, well, so unpack that for us. Yeah, yeah, let me try to dive into that. So when we say mixed impacts... Um, Think about a student who is, so these are students who are in high school. So we're going to look, most of the impacts are on students who previously had relatively low test scores. So think about a student who maybe failed the 8th grade exam. What happens on the 10th grade exam, which is the high stakes exam for high schools? And what we found was that if you were a student who, was, who, who had failed, previously failed an exam, and you were in a school that was right on the, the, the bubble between getting a low performing rating and an acceptable rating, so if the school just you know kind of got a few more kids over that hump, they'd get that acceptable rating. Uh, you you your test scores went up, um, and you were better off in the long run. So we found that those kids had higher college attendance and completion rates and higher earnings. So that was a that was good news for those students in the schools that were at risk of being rated low performing. Now look at the same type of student who also previously failed an eighth grade exam and is now in a school that is on the border between acceptable and recognized. So schools trying to get that gold star, that extra accolade. 
these are schools that had many fewer low-scoring students. They tended to be higher income and white, you know, whiter schools. Um, and what we found is those students, their test scores did not go up. In fact, we find some evidence that what happens is they were um, being classified as eligible for special education, which at the time in Texas meant they were exempt from the accountability standard. So, and that turned out to be really bad for those kids in the long run. So we found lower earnings, lower college attendance rates for, for those students, and pretty strong evidence that it was strategic because these were students who weren't previously in special education classes in eighth grade and then were newly classified in 10th grade. So the, the bottom line is, you know, it, it, the accountability seemed to have worked for schools that were on the border between low performing and acceptable, but not in schools that were on the border between acceptable and recognized. So help us understand how big these uh, effects were. I actually uh, looked at this article with some of my students in a course this past week. Thank you. Uh, and <laughs> they uh, sort of found it very interesting, of course, but then they looked at the numbers on the figures and said, uh, gosh, this seems like quite small. Yeah. Uh, 1.9 percentage point increase in the probability of attending a four-year college if you're a low-performing student in yeah. one of these schools where accountability seemed to have worked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how should we think about the size of these uh, results? Yeah, so so I think two, two things to say. One is, you know, 1.9 percentage points doesn't sound like much, but there are not that many kids um, completing four-year colleges in this group, and so as a share, it might be like a 20 or 25 percent increase, which mm -hmm. is pretty large. But on the other hand, you know, if you had this, so the, the kind of proponents of accountability, um, you know, if you, if you asked people back in 2001 what they would expect to find from a policy like this, I think most people would think that the, the positive impacts would have been bigger. And if you asked critics of school accountability what they think the negative impacts would have been ahead of time, I think most of them would have thought the negative impacts mm -hmm. would have been bigger. So my overall story is I, I largely agree with your students. Like while there are some, you know, big impacts by research standards, I think that it's pretty clear that this was neither the silver bullet that anyone expected to be, nor was it the disaster that some people expected. Yeah, I so. think that's one thing we're learning about test-based accountability over time is that it's not a sort of transformational in and of itself, yeah. that I don't think it can be the driver of dramatic changes uh, in productivity or performance of school systems over time, even if it uh, can maybe provide the information that would be needed to tell us whether school systems are improving. I think that's right. I mean, this seems to be a lesson we learn over and over again, right? Like, you know, it's not such a bad thing to gradually improve policies and gradually improve um, school systems, uh, you know, in terms of policy and practice. You know, we like, you know, the, the, the rhetoric around it is often that we're going to solve all of our problems with this. But in the end, if we just get a little bit better all the time, that's not a bad thing either. So let's talk a little bit about what this means for sort of the approach to accountability going forward. This is what Congress is wrestling with. And uh, if as many people suspect the next Elementary and Secondary Education Act uh, provides states with much more flexibility. You'll have uh, states making a lot of decisions about what their system looks like. And, uh, you know, I find it very interesting in the paper you point to the FDA as a potential model for the type of accountability system we want to have in place. Can you sort of explain that? Sure. So, so I think, you know, it's not that I have something that I think the FDA is particularly well run or something. It's yeah. more that the the general, not that it's badly run, I actually have no idea, but the, but the, 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 the general um, principle behind this is that, you know, one approach is to say, look, we're going to rate and rank schools and tell you, you know, we're going to design some system where we give schools, you know, letter grades, or we assign points, and then we say, these are the best schools, these are the second best, third best, etc. And that's kind of what a lot of these accountability systems do. But a more modest goal would be to just say, look, you know, we're, these are schools that are taking public funds. And so our job as regulators, as policymakers, is to say, is to certify that if you're sending your child to this school, it is, it is worthy of funding. It is good enough. And to just, and to just think of it as a essentially like a safety inspection or like this product is safe for consumer mm -hmm. use. 
And once we do almost that, almost like a restaurant inspection, exactly. making sure they're not, you know, uh, health hazards uh, to eating there. Exactly. You know the the uh, yeah. So you don't you don't when you see the letter grades for sanitation, they're basically like, well, if you get an A, that's fine. It's not like the you know Zagat is a private company. It's like right. the the government's not in the business of telling us what the best restaurants are. So maybe they shouldn't be in the business of telling us what the best schools are because the truth is people have different preferences for what they they like in schools. And so I, I guess for me, it's a more you know modest. Um, claim to just say, look, let's just make sure, let's focus our attention on the schools that really need help, and kind of, and that's consistent with our findings because we found that most of the impacts were for schools that were on the border between low performing and acceptable, which were schools that were lower scoring. Schools. Well, that's where the positive impacts were. Exactly, that's uh, where the positive impacts. And were. so I, I hear that recommendation sort of coming a little bit out of your negative findings as well. Exactly. That trying to regulate schools at a higher level of performance may have been counterproductive. But yeah. and that's where I wanted to push you a little bit sure. because. I mean, it seems if I look back at the Texas system, uh, if you create a system where you're going to start holding schools accountable based on their test performance uh, and you don't regulate how many students schools mm -hmm. can place in special yeah. education, uh, then the pattern of findings you you know came up with yeah. seems to me to be quite expectable given uh, mm -hmm. uh what we know about how schools respond to the incentives yeah. we create for them. So why not just, uh, you know, why can't we just do a better job? In fact, No Child Left Behind did place limits on the share of students that can be yeah. excluded because of a special education classification. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great point. Um, and in fact, Texas did close this loophole subsequently. Yeah. You know, so, but I think for me, the issue is really that in order to design a system that, that you know, when you want, to give more information about which schools are best, which are worse, you need to make the system more complicated. You have to have more measures. And the more complicated you make it, the more you create in, in ways to get around the system to strategically respond. So a simpler system is also harder to game. And so I think I, I, while it's possible to say, oh, that's a loophole, let's close that one, let's close that loophole, I don't. It, the more complicated the system gets, the harder it is to really do that well. And I think you know people are very creative when their jobs are on the line. And so to me, I'm just skeptical that we can ever design a perfect, complicated mm -hmm. system of regulating schools. And I see it, you know, if you just said, if you just focused your attention on the schools that, you know, truly needed the help, I think it, it would, there would be less strategic response, fewer strategic responses and more kind of real response. I mean, I don't, you know, the schools that were on this low performing bubble, I think the issue is really that, you know, you can't, there were a lot, many, many more low scoring students. So you, you couldn't reclassify you all of them. You couldn't reclassify the whole education. school, exactly. Yeah. And so, and so, and the reason why there were few students in the higher scoring schools, by the way, is because of, a, of I think, a provision that was generally pretty good, which is that um, schools were accountable not just for overall performance of students, but also performance of key subgroups, like students of color, poor students. And so what happened is you get these groups, you know, you're a relatively high scoring school, but you've got a small number of low scoring students of color or poor students. And, and, and these schools had very strong incentives. If they just made a few kids not accountable anymore, they could get under the minimum size threshold. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of you're trying to accomplish all these goals with a policy. And as you build all in all these rules, minimum size threshold, which groups count, you know, which tests, it just, it's, it just builds up and builds up. And there's so many different ways to try to get around that and so many incentives it creates to, get, to try to get around in ways that aren't that helpful for kids. Well, uh, so I guess I'm just, I guess I'm just um, personally maybe uh, skeptical that we can really do something this complicated yeah. right. And maybe we should rein in our ambitions for what we're asking test-based accountability systems I, I, to do yes. uh, and that we might be able to do some modest good. Yes, that's my view. All right. Actual well, incrementalism. Thank you uh, for your article, Dave, and thank you for taking the time to uh, discuss it with us today. It was my pleasure, Marty. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.